We are in Philippians chapter 1. If you have not already opened your Bibles to that section of God's Word, I would invite you to turn there now. If you don't have a Bible, there's likely a blue Bible located underneath the seat around you. And in that Bible, you can turn to page 980, and that'll bring you to our text. We're looking at the last, very last part of 18, this section, and then all the way through 26. This will be part one of two parts for this section. So don't panic, we're not preaching the whole, I'm not going to be preaching the whole section. But as a reminder, as a reminder, and this is an important reminder because context is critical to understanding Paul's message here and his points he's making and the emphasis that he has. As a reminder, Paul writes this letter to the church in Philippi while he is under house arrest in Rome where he waits to have his court case heard by Caesar, by Caesar, the king, the emperor, pretty serious matter. And he knows that that will happen because he was promised by God that that would happen. You can see that in Acts 27, 22 through 25. He was assured by an angel of God that he would stand before Caesar and have his day before him. And what led to this imprisonment of Paul? Well, it was Paul's bold and faithful proclamation of the gospel, or the message concerning his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what got him into this predicament. It was his preaching of Christ. And those who hated the message of Christ... caused him to be, have to appeal to Caesar because they were looking to kill him. So he knew he would not get a fair trial or hearing in Jerusalem. It caused him to, as a Roman citizen, appeal to Caesar so that he could make his defense before Caesar himself. But as we saw last time in the letter, in verses 12 through 18, which is the section just prior to the one we're going to look at now, Paul wanted his concerned Christian brothers and sisters in Philippi to know something. He wanted them to know that his imprisonment had actually served to advance the gospel even more. Even more. And Paul reflects on the two ways in which his imprisonment had done that very thing. First, Paul's witness to the imperial guard who would rotate through and watch over him because they guarded him 24 hours a day. They may have even been chained to Paul. And so Paul says, look, yeah, I'm in prison, but the whole imperial guard of Rome, this elite group of soldiers, are hearing the gospel because of my imprisonment. And no doubt, that gospel that's being heard by them is spreading out even further as the guards would share with others what this prisoner was sharing with them. Beyond that, he says that the Christians there in Rome, because of his imprisonment, were becoming even bolder in sharing Christ with others. 
But concerning that, some of those who were preaching Christ there in Rome and becoming more bolder in their preaching, some of them had impure motives, Paul tells us. One writer says the preachers in the Roman church were of two sorts, differentiated by their attitude towards Paul. The one group consisted of those who felt genuine goodwill towards the Apostle Paul, and they, as one writer put it, stepped into the gap left by Paul's imprisonment while he was there incarcerated, and they carried on his work of gospel preaching, bold gospel preaching, because they desired to help Paul by continuing his mission. He's there in prison, and even before the elite Roman guard, he's there, he doesn't stop, he continues to preach. We're going to pick up the mantle, and we're going to run with it, and we're going to preach Christ to this pagan society, regardless of the consequences. Those were the, the ones that had goodwill towards Paul, but there was another group that for some reason had animosity towards Paul, some type of personal rivalry, and, and we've discussed this already, and, and Paul says that their motives weren't pure. Yes, they were preaching, but they were doing it with impure motives, thinking that in some way they might kind of rub salt in Paul's wound. At least that's what they thought. Maybe thinking that, look, you're locked up and we're not. We're free and we're making the message known. We're not sure, but Paul is clear. They were preaching Christ, but they actually did it with, in part with an intent to try to hurt Paul. Christians, they're wonderful, aren't they? But Paul says, but Paul says at the end or at the beginning of verse 18, and I, and I gave you a different translation because I thought it was just, uh, just a beautiful way it was said. He says, but what does it matter? But what does it matter? Here is the important thing. Whether for reasons that are right or wrong, Christ is being preached, and in that I rejoice. In other words, it doesn't matter They can look to hurt me. They're not. They can try. But what matters most for me, the Apostle Paul, is that the gospel is still going forth. And even though I'm locked up, I'm making him known, and me making him known and continuing to be bold for the sake of Christ is causing others to be bold. And some do it from good motives out of love for me and a desire to see Christ advance, and others do it to hurt me. But what does it matter? Because this is not about me. My life is about Christ. And as long as he's being advanced, as long as he's being lifted up, as long as he's being proclaimed, then I can and do rejoice. That's something, beloved. That's something. Now, picking up from there, and just continue to hold on to that thought about the Apostle Paul and and how he thinks and how he feels about such things. Picking up from there, we see that Paul has more to say now about his imprisonment. But now, but now he looks forward. He looks forward to his trial, which has not yet occurred. He's waiting for it. He looks forward to his trial where he will stand before Caesar. And basically, he shares his thoughts with us on the matter. That's what we're going to see in this section. Almost as if he's thinking out loud and he writes it down. And let me say something about that that you need to, to hear. You probably already know this, but I want to I point it out anyway. 
Paul, as always, has a purpose in sharing what he shares. Paul's sharing is meant to be instructive, okay? He's not just, he's just not filling in the Philippians on, hey, this is what's going on in the life of Paul. This is not an Instagram post. This is not a Facebook update. It is meant to be, he is, he is being particular about what he shares and what he doesn't. And, it, and he's doing it for the purpose of teaching and instructing and encouraging those Christians there in Philippi. And, as God has seen fit to it, us as well, because it has been included in the Holy Scriptures for the church for all time. It's like, think of it as when Paul shares details about his life, it's like stories with moral lessons. You know those short stories? You don't, you don't read the story. You know that you're reading that. Okay, this has a lesson I'm supposed to learn from it, right? I'm not just reading a, a story to be entertained. I'm reading it because it's supposed to teach me something. That's how you should think every time you read Paul and he begins to share with you what's going on or has gone on in his life, how he feels, what he's done, how he thinks. It's on purpose. It's intentional. It's meant to be instructional. So when you read that and, and you're reading it, you should think and stop and pause. What is it that Paul's trying to teach me here about my faith, about what it is to be a Christian, about God, about Christ? What am I to learn from what Paul's telling me? It's not just to fill people in on what's going on in his life. Oh, here's an update. It's not that. Okay? You with me? So if you, if you read it and you walk away with nothing, you go, that was interesting. You missed it. You missed it. Verse 18. The, uh, at the beginning of verse 18, as we saw, Christ is being proclaimed. Even if not everyone's doing it from pure motives, even if they, some of them are trying to hurt me by their freedom to preach Christ as I'm locked up. And in that, I rejoice. That's present tense. I'm rejoicing. I rejoice in the fact that no matter, no matter what, Christ is being proclaimed. So I am rejoicing. Now the tense changes when we pick up in the latter part of verse 18. And there he says, yes, and I will rejoice. Future tense. Future tense. So I'm rejoicing now, and I will rejoice. He's looking forward. He's looking forward concerning what's going on with his imprisonment. And he says this in verse 19, For I know that through your prayers, now he tells us why, he will rejoice. I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. 21. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary. On your account, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause 
to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. All right, that's the entire section. We're not going to deal with all of it today, but let me just give you a few things up front. There is some difference of opinion among good Bible scholars concerning the, de- the details of this passage, so I just want to tell you that up front. I have arrived at my own conclusion after reading all that I could read in a given week, but depending on who you read and what you read, and even the translation you're looking at, the English translation you're looking at, there's, they're understanding these things maybe a little differently, so I just want to state that. Second, the way I see it is this passage really pivots on verse 21. It pivots on verse 21. It leads up to 21, and then out of 21, it flows out of it. And that is where Paul says, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain, which is why I made it the title of the sermon. And hopefully that will make more sense to you, uh, and you'll understand it fully if you don't already, what Paul's driving at. By making that statement. So what we learn is Paul is not only rejoicing now in his present circumstances because the gospel is going forth regardless of the fact that he is incarcerated. But we also learn that he will rejoice in the future because he is confident. He is confident that through the prayers of the Philippians on his behalf, And the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, which is likely a reference to the Holy Spirit. You can note, if you're taking notes, John 14, 16, and 15, 26, where the Lord Jesus promises to send the Helper, the Spirit, to empower his people for the work of ministry and making him known and making disciples. So it's a Spirit sent by Christ for the purpose of magnifying Christ and pointing people to Christ. But on behalf, on, through the prayers of the Philippians and on behalf of the help of the Spirit of Jesus, which I, again is probably the Holy Spirit, he is confident that this, that's the word in verse 19, that this, and I would understand this to be his present circumstances or, or namely his imprisonment, his imprisonment, will turn out for his deliverance. This will turn out for his deliverance. I rejoice knowing that through your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit, this ultimately will turn out for my deliverance. Now, there is an incredible amount of discussion and some difference of opinion among, again, Bible scholars concerning what Paul means exactly by using the word that's translated deliverance in our English Bibles. When you think of the word, you could could also think of rescue. You could think of rescue. It would be right to understand the word that way. Some, uh, Some believe that and again, if, this is, if that is all Paul said, let me just say this. If there was a period, if the sentence ended, ended right there, I rejoice in knowing that through your prayers on my behalf and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, 
that this will ultimately result in my deliverance. End of story, nothing more to be said. If that's all that was said, then you might understand it to mean, and some do, that he is speaking of his, what might you think? His physical release from prison. You might understand it to mean that. But that is not all that Paul says. That is not all that Paul says. And that's important to know. And to include everything he says. And, and I would just add that it would be out of sorts for Paul in some way. It would be out of sorts. That that would be the emphasis that I am... I'm trusting that through your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit, I'm getting out of here. Certainly, if Paul was out, he could do more for the sake of Christ. There's an advantage to freedom. But as he was just discussing, he's rejoicing because his imprisonment is actually causing the advance of the gospel in ways that wouldn't have happened if he wasn't in prison. So I, I just don't think that's what Paul is thinking of when he uses this term deliverance, or at least that's how it's translated in most Bibles. And in addition to that, I believe what follows in verse 20 informs us as to what kind of deliverance or rescue, if you will, Paul is referring to, and is confident, that's the other thing, he's confident that he's going to experience this deliverance concerning his imprisonment or present circumstances, okay? So let's look at that. Let's look at that to see, because this ties in, this leads up to that statement, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. It's leading up to that. So we need to understand this before we get to that. And then once we understand that, we can step into the next section, which will be next week. Let's look at what it says in context. Beginning in verse 19 again. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this, my present circumstances, my imprisonment, and all that's involved, will turn out for my deliverance. 20 as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. But, opposed to that, contrary to that, so this helps us understand what ashamed he's talking about and what he's thinking about. I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, now, in these present circumstances, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Or by death. Which right away then should, should help you think, how could he be talking about, if it is deliverance or, or escape from prison, is he saying, yeah, you know, whether I, I'm killed and I escape or whether I'm, you know, I live and I escape. I mean, it doesn't, it seems like this deliverance is, is not connected to 
just him being let go. But that's not what he's talking about. In fact, this deliverance will occur. Paul's confident of it. Through the prayers of the Philippians and the help of the Spirit, this deliverance will occur, and it can occur whether he live or he die. This deliverance Paul speaks of, it includes, as we just saw, the following ideas, okay? So as we're looking at the text and looking at everything in context, it includes this, that Paul will, now make sure you note it, not be at all ashamed, right? But instead, that Christ now, as I said, in this current situation, as Christ had certainly been in previous situations with Paul, that Christ would be honored, lifted up, magnified, and maybe you could even say validated by Paul, whether that be by Paul's life or by his death. In other words, whatever the outcome of the trial may be, because it could go either way when he stands before Caesar, who's a pagan, and they're not too fond of Christianity, because Christianity says, your pagan gods are false, and there is only one, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. But it could go either way, but whatever the outcome of the trial may be, Paul is confident that Christ will be glorified through Paul and the actions he takes, and in that, he will rejoice. Or, to put it another way, to put it another way, deliverance, I believe, for Paul means here, when we take both things into consideration that he will not be ashamed in anything, but that he will with full courage exalt Christ, honor Christ in his body. I believe it means that deliverance would be that Paul would not fumble or fold under the pressure of this situation. And in any way, in any way, either by his actions or what he says or by what he doesn't say or what he doesn't do, in any way bring dishonor to his precious Lord, or doubt about who Jesus Christ truly is. I thought you said he was Lord, Paul. Now you're acting a little bit differently. I thought you said his is the kingdom. Now you're acting as if that's not so. Your actions are not validating what your gospel is preaching. And so, his rescue would be, his deliverance would be not to fumble or fold under this pressure and bring in any way dishonor to his precious Lord or doubt, and therefore not be ashamed. Because if he did any of those things, he would be ashamed. Because for Paul to live is Christ. But instead, he's hoping, trusting, believing, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and the prayers of his fellow saints, Christ would be, as he had many times before in Paul's Christian life, with all Holy Spirit-produced boldness, you can note Acts 4.31, 
magnified and exalted by Paul in his living and, if required, in his dying, in his execution. That, I believe, to me, makes the most sense of the entire passage in all that I know about Paul and all that Paul is saying, especially in this letter and what he's driving home. As one writer points out, concerning the issue of shame or being ashamed, one writer says this, as we saw in verses 12 through 18, Paul is experiencing no shame or disgrace from being in prison. He's not ashamed. He's there for the defense of the gospel. He's there because he's making Christ known. He glories in it. He's suffering for the sake of Christ. He's not ashamed. He's not a criminal. He's done nothing wrong. He's done right. So it can't be something in regard to that, that I, I'm just trusting that I won't be ashamed, that I won't be left here in prison. Leave me. I'll preach Christ. I'll motivate my brothers and sisters to preach Christ. So it has nothing to do with that. So what does it have to do with? Paul is experiencing no shame or disgrace from being in prison. His concern is that there will be no reason for disgrace as far as the gospel is concerned when he finally stands before the Roman tribunal. And that's no small matter, folks. That's not like small court claims, you know, Judge Judy stuff. That's like they can call for your execution right there on the spot. goes on to say, shame, of course, is not what Paul expects given their prayers and the help of the Spirit of Christ. No, that's not what he expects. He is confident that will not occur, that he will be delivered from any such thing. Whether it be by life or by living or dying, it matters not. Another writer says, the shame Paul hoped to avoid had nothing to do with personal reputation or the verdict at the trial. His sense of shame was directly connected to God's gracious appointment to defend the gospel. He goes on to say this, Paul would be ashamed if he did or said anything that was not consistent with the proclamation of Jesus Christ. If he were to cower or, or recant, that would speak another message than the one he just gave, that this is the Lord of Lords, and this Lord has promised him a place in his kingdom, and his kingdom is coming, and you, Rome, better repent now, or you will be cast out into the utter darkness. You will have no entrance into this kingdom. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. He is the sovereign one. You have no power over me other than the power he allows you to have. And then he cowers. And then he recants and says, Caesar is lord. That would bring Paul shame. That would invalidate all that Paul was preaching, at least in the minds of those who saw that happen. 
when it comes to courage, when he talks about not ashamed, but full courage, one writer says this, the word courage refers to outspokenness, frankness, and boldness of speech, especially in the presence of a person of high rank. I don't know about you, but like, even an officer, I haven't had this happen in a long time. But uh, even just a police officer pulls up next side of me. All of a sudden, I get a little freaky. I mean, that's probably not the right word. Uh, on edge. On edge, I should say. Don't get any weird ideas. On edge. Nervous. He's one in authority. Uh, and certainly, you walk into a courtroom of any kind with a judge, Right? He's saying before the person of highest rank in the world at that time. I'm looking for full courage. And I'm trusting that I'll have it. Because of the prayers of God's people. And the power of the spirit that dwells in me. That enables me to have the boldness to make him known even in the face of such power. The writer says this, Paul is eager to take his stand in the Roman court and defend the gospel. You know why I'm here? I am ready to tell you, Caesar. I am ready to give testimony to my Christ, the risen and resurrected King of kings and Lord of lords. I am ready. He knows, the writer says, that the prayers of his partners and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ will empower him to speak with such boldness before the Roman tribunal that Christ will be exalted. This is the deliverance that Paul expects. And uh, I agree. I think that's right. I think that is exactly right. He goes on to say, this deliverance, and empowering to be a bold witness for Christ, his Lord. Paul is aware that his trial, his trial may be his last and greatest witness for Christ in his body. In fact, his witness at that trial may cause his execution. Nevertheless, Paul's goal in life is the exaltation of of himself, yeah, of Christ, whether by life or by death. And as he ponders and looks forward to that, <laughs> this is what he says, he will rejoice. One writer says, his joy did not depend on the prospect of keeping his life, but on honoring Christ, whether by life or by death. It matters not. As long as I honor Christ, I will rejoice. As long as he's being advanced, I will rejoice. As long as he's being exalted, regardless of the cost to me, I will rejoice. He's everything. He's everything. I, I've told you this before. I'll tell you again. I am, uh, 
And I'm not there. <laughs> I'm not exactly there, I don't think. I don't know. I would trust that the Lord would uh, work it out his grace in me. I've, I've never faced such situations. Uh, goodness. But uh, I inspired to be there at that place. I inspired to, to be where Paul is in his thinking and in his heart. I get it. I understand it. He knows Christ in such a way that, yeah, he is everything. He is my all in all. He is worthy. He is worthy. Not me, him. One writer says this, just as Paul looked back over his incarceration to this moment, as we saw in the earlier section, and could rejoice at its being a catalyst for the progress of the gospel in Rome, so now he looks forward and again rejoices, eagerly anticipating that his trial will further glorify Christ, whether by life or by death. You know, when I think about what he said in, in, in 18a, what does it matter? What then? What does it matter? As long as Christ is being preached, I rejoice, right? It's that same type of idea here. It's as if Paul is saying here, what then? What then? Only that whether I live or die, whether I live or die, Christ is exalted through me. And in that, I will rejoice, and I am confident that will happen. Not because I'm awesome or strong, but because the prayers of God's people praying on my behalf and the power of the one who dwells in me, who is stronger than all of you or anything that I might face. And now, in response to that, that statement, right? Because the Philippians are concerned for him. They've sent... They've sent a gift to him. They've sent uh, uh, Paphroditus to him to minister to him, to care for him. They're concerned, right? But Paul is like, guys, I'm okay. Because Christ is being advanced. The gospel's going forth in a way that it wouldn't have if I didn't get locked up. On top of that, yeah, I'll stand before Caesar, but that's what God told me I would do, and I am ready. I am ready. I'm looking forward to making the Lord known to him. And as long as, whether it be I'm released or I'm executed, as long as I stand my ground and proclaim him and exalt him and validate through my life, and if so, through my death, because I will not recant, I will not turn back, I validate all that I've said, that he is Lord of lords and worthy of all of my worship, then, then, my dear Philippian brothers and sisters in Christ, I will rejoice. This is a man, as I said before, that has just been captured his heart entirely captured with the glory that is Christ. Is that you? I told you I'm not, I don't feel like I'm there. You know, I want to be. 
I'm striving. I want to be so captured. But I told you, Paul tells his story to instruct, to teach, to challenge. It's very challenging. But in response to all that, in response to all that, that is where now Paul says, because this verse is so often, well, it's just one of those like Terry's, like it's a bumper sticker verse, or I don't never seen it on a hat. But you know, I mean, just that it's just a verse that gets pulled out, and it's it's fine, I guess. It's just that he's not speaking in generalities in verse 21. You know, just like, you know, you know, to live is Christ. To die is gain. You know, he's, it's in the context of this situation. You see? Which then brings a heaviness to it, a, a greater weight to it. And it's in response to that, what he just said. Listen, guys, I will rejoice. Whether I die or I live, I will rejoice because I... I am confident that I will exalt him either way. And then he says in verse 21, for to me. For to me, Paul. It's placed as one, as, well, I'll just tell you. It's in the emphatic position. It's the beginning of the sentence. It's the first thing he wants you to hear. For to me, not just, he's not just saying, you know, guys, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For to me, Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I would say that that statement explains what you just read. It explains the commitment that he has that's expressed in those previous verses, the commitment to the glory of Christ, whether I live or I die. Because for to me, to live is Christ, and to die, well, that's gain. So let's consider that for a second, that phrase a little bit closer. Because then flowing out of that, he'll begin to process those options with us and for us. And we'll learn some more things there. But let's just focus on that phrase, that statement. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I know that the title says to live is Christ and to die is gain. What I would like you to do and be asking yourself as I am doing is can I put before that, for to me? Can I put that there? I know it's true of Paul, but is it true of me? And to what degree? Because there's always degrees, right? There's no perfection on this side of the cross. There's degrees. To what degree is it true of me? Can I put it there? I believe I can, but I'm, I'm still not at the place where Paul was. And Paul even said he's still in pursuit of Christ. He has not reached perfection. But Paul, is, he holds himself up as a model, as an example, as one to emulate. 
For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ. Here's what some commentators say. The very essence of Paul's present life was Christ. And all that this entailed, Christ had become for him, for Paul, the very motive for his actions. He does what he does because of Christ. Not because of him, but because of Christ. He says what he says. He goes where he goes. The decisions he makes because of Christ. The writer says the goal of his life and ministry were Christ. The goal of his life. I was thinking about that. What is the goal of my life? Oh, I have goals. But what is the goal of my life? What is the goal of your life, beloved, friend? What is the goal of your life? What consumes you? What occupies your mind more than anything else? What is the goal of your life? For Paul, it was Christ. He's teaching. He's instructing. Another writer says, to live is Christ. It expresses, again, the meaning and goal of Paul's life. He goes on to say the foundation, center, purpose, direction, power, and meaning of Paul's life is Christ. He goes on to say, for the purpose of living, for Paul, the purpose of living is pressing forward to know and serve Christ each day. Is that you? Is that me? Is my purpose for living to press forward to know and serve Christ more each and every day, each and every week, each and every month, each and every year? Am I farther along in that pursuit or am I not even in that pursuit? Am I pursuing something else, something worthless, something less? He goes on to say, when the goal of living, listen, when the goal of living is Christ, then living, then living inevitably follows the way of Christ, which, by the way, is the way of self-giving, self-humbling, and self-sacrifice. And then he says this, the way of living, this way of living is not, is not an escape from suffering. It is not. We talked about that a few weeks ago, I believe. I was looking at Mark. For to me, Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. There is no end there. It's just provided by the translators. It really is. For to me, to live, Christ. To die, gain. Very powerful. To die is gain. What is it, beloved? What is it that is gained by the Christian in death? That Paul, you're talking to me, and I like that. Huh? Okay, so eternal life. Okay, all right. Let's let the text answer. But those are good answers, certainly. But let's look back. Let's see if we can just find an answer here. Because there is one. We don't even have to guess. What is it that is gained by the Christian in death that Paul is thinking of here? Well, guess what? In verses 22 through 23, which we'll look at next time, next time in detail, more detail, Paul discusses there the alternative courses that are stated in verse 21, whether he live 
or whether he dies. To live is Christ, to die is gain. And he says this, if I am to live in the flesh, to go on living, well, that means fruitful labor for me. That is, for, for me to live is Christ. Fruitful labor on behalf of Christ. Living out my life for Christ. If I am to go on living, that means fruitful labor for me. For to me to live is Christ. Right? I will produce the fruit that God has for me because I'm living for Christ. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm going to just say something. We'll come back to it next week. Don't think that Paul is sitting here thinking, should I off myself? I mean, if you were just reading it, Paul is not having a debate about whether or not he'll take his life, okay? But come back next week. I'll explain that. I can see maybe someone might read that and go, but a clear, obviously, you've got to know, that's not the discussion here. But I'll explain it next week. Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. And then he says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. Depart would be death. For that is far better. Literally, it says, by far the best. And that's what it means for me to die is gain. That's what Paul is thinking of. What does he gain? Christ in his fullest, unhindered fellowship with the one that he loves, with the one that he's serving, with the one that he's longing for with the goal of his life. Paul does not view death as loss for him. So relax, Philippians. Whether I live or whether I die, it is my intention to exalt Christ. For me to live is Christ. And to die, well, sorry, blowing snot out my nose. I have to say it, otherwise someone would be like, did he just blow snot out of his nose? He did. <laughs> For me to live is Christ. For me to die, folks, well, I gain Christ. I'm going to rejoice either way. death, he will finally be fully with the one that he has been living and longing for. His desire, as we see here, was to depart and be with Christ, for that is by far the best. One writer says this concerning that phrase, to die is gain. He says this, and listen, it should go without saying that such a statement has meaning only for one to whom the first clause is a vibrant living reality. If to live is Christ is in no way a true of you, then for you to die is not gain. It is loss. It is the worst of loss. I wonder if that's you. It's also foreign to you. What are you even talking about? I don't have Christ. I know of him, but I don't have him. Well, my friend, 
you can have him. You can have him. If you will turn to him in faith and repentance of your sin and call out to him to save you, he will save you. He will take you unto himself and make you his own. And you can have him and he'll begin to do the work in you that will cause you to be able to say to one degree or another to live. For me to live is Christ. And therefore to die is gain. The writer points out the only thing a person who has not Christ gains is escape from the world. But Paul's not looking to escape the world. Look, if I'm here, I'm serving. I'm living for him. I'm a fruit producer. I'll just produce more fruit for him. Keep exalting him. Keep glorifying him. Prison, not prison. Torture, not torture. It doesn't matter. I'm not looking to escape, but certainly I long to be with him. One writer says this, dying is gain, not because it is an escape from life, but because it leads to union with Christ, the goal of life. It's sad to me, I'm heartbroken, so many suicides, especially of late. And for them, it is just that. They're just trying to escape life. But that's an escape into a dark abyss if it's apart from Christ. They're not looking for union with Christ. They're taking their life to escape this life. That's not what Paul is saying or doing. He's not looking to escape life, but he desires to be united fully and completely with his Lord, who he is serving in this life. One writer says this concerning just the whole phrase, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He paraphrases it this way. Life means Christ to me as I more fully know and love and serve him day by day. Death means Christ to me when I shall finally possess and eternally enjoy him. That's Paul. Don't miss that. His desire is to depart. When he speaks of gain, death is gain for him because it's the gain of Christ. It, his desire is to depart and be with Christ, beloved, with Christ, right? Just think of that. His desire, because that is by far the best, <laughs> all right? If you're making choices, that's by far the best one, to be with Christ, to be with him, unhindered fellowship, but when you think about the way even people speak, even Christians or those who are not Christians, but they just think everyone goes to heaven, they often will say stuff, I can't wait to go and be with my loved ones again. Right? Now, the loved ones that have gone on before that were in Christ, I certainly look to be with them again. Right? Isn't that, that would be normal. It would be weird. It would be twisted if you were not looking forward to that, right? But is that the primary thing? 
if you were there with your loved ones, but there were no Christ, that would be no place to be. That's hell. That is awful. Christ is everything. Christ is the prize. We, people talk about going to heaven, you know, in streets of gold. I don't, let's, okay, the streets, let's just pretend for a moment, the streets are paved with gold. Everything's encrusted with diamonds. But there is no Christ. That's a pretty hell. And God, I think, you know, does this work in the heart of the believer, but to help them see Christ is all in all. Christ is the glory. Christ is the promise. Christ is the hope. It is Christ we worship, not where he dwells or where we will dwell. It is Christ. He's the glory. You cannot, you cannot get to know Christ in fellowship with him and not have that happen to you where you are consumed in that way, where everything else blurs out. My daughter has this new phone, just amazing pictures it takes when it's taking pictures of people. It blurs, you probably have it, I'm not a tech buff, but it blurs everything else so that the people in the frame just become the focus. Very cool. For the Christian, that's exactly what happens. Everything else begins to just blur. And Christ becomes more clear, more focused for us. And we want more of him. And that was true of Paul. Is it true of you? I'll close with this. It's a long quote, but I want to read it, and then I'll just pray. Commentator says this, Paul's saying, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, puts everything into focus for us, as far as our understanding the apostle is concerned. First, he is a man of one passion, Christ and him alone. It seems clear that this is what he also desires for the Philippians and for us as well. Both our progress and that of the gospel is contingent upon such a maxim, a statement, to live as Christ, to die as gain, characterizing our individual and corporate lives. Their problem, the Philippians, and ours, is the strong tendency to speak thus, but in effect to live otherwise. One wonders what the people of God might truly be like in our postmodern world if we were once again people of this singular passion. Too often for us it is, for me to live is Christ, plus work, leisure, accumulating wealth, relationships, etc. And if the truth were known, all too often the plus factor has become our primary passion. For me to live is my work. For me to live is my kids. 
Both our progress and joy regarding the gospel are altogether contingent on whether or not Christ is our primary, singular passion. This is surely an infinitely greater option than the self-gratification which dominates the culture within which this commentary has been written. By the way, written 1995. So we're even farther along in that mess. Second, he says, to die is gain, expresses in relationship to Christ the thoroughgoing eschatological orientation of Paul's existence, looking forward to the final things. Here, too, the contemporary church has tended to lose too much. In a world that has lost its way, believers in Christ Jesus have the singular word of hope. We expect eventually to depart and be with Christ. For Paul, this was a yearning. For us, it is too often an addendum. Yeah, you know, at the end, Christ, heaven. The point to make, of course, is that such an orientation gives us both focus and perspective in a world gone mad. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Is it true of you? Father in heaven, we, we thank you, Lord, for your word, and we just ask that you now do your work in us and among us for your glory, according to your purposes. We love you. We trust you. We trust you to do good things, great things, wonderful things, things that will exalt our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.